Hey everybody, Anson here. So this episode contains a bit of strong language, so if you'd prefer a beeped version, you can go to our website, thewellpod.com, and go to our show notes tab. You'll find it there. Okay, enjoy the show. Brennan, where are you? I'm at home. Just got back from the cabin. Oh, how was the cabin? What were you doing up there? Oh, it's great. Nothing this time. No, uh, no heavy lifting. No work. Everything was covered in snow. So, me and uh, Sharon, a couple of friends, just sat around and ate and enjoyed the peace and quiet. That sounds fantastic. You let yourself not work on it this time. <laughs> this is a thing. <laughs> Have you managed to get Every, there? Everyone is. Everyone's amazed. You know, like I think. <laughs> See, see, I can't win. People couldn't calm down because I wouldn't stop working, and now people think it's weird because I'm not working. I thought the thing was going to turn into the Winchester house, like you're never going to stop building it or you'd feel haunted. I think I'm at the point now where I like, uh, I'm, I'm tired, and I'm, 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 I'm letting things... <laughs> I'm old. I'm old and tired <laughs> and fat, and I just want to let things just kind of sit. <laughs> and now when things start yeah. to... Now it's, now it's become sort of contemptuous relationship with the structure. When I look at it, I'm like, something falls apart, and I'm like, good. <laughs> you just lie there and rot. I'm not going to fix that. Well, I'm in the mountains myself now. I'm in I'm in Mount Pocono. Oh, Pocono's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about to start shooting, or I already started shooting this movie, but we're about to pick it up again. Started shooting in California with Anthony Hopkins, not to name drop or anything. You can't really say that Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> you can't really say that name without <laughs> dropping it. Who is an amazing guy, and actually did an interview for the podcast, which will be upcoming later in the season. But for this episode, we have a couple of uh, interviews back-to-back from Star Trek. And you know what? I I never asked you, uh, before I was on Star Trek, were you a fan of Star Trek growing up? I actually was not. Not to say that I was not a fan. I just, it didn't appeal to me uh, as a a kid. Um, I think I was more into horror. And something about the, especially the, the, you know, the original series, I couldn't get past the you know, the kitschy sort of cheesiness of it. I was not connecting to the ideas at that age. I was just noticing how flimsy the set looked. <laughs> and That is so you. I, no, no, it says a lot about me, doesn't it? Um, but it all had a, had a very sort of pivotal moment in the way I considered Star Trek, and specifically the way I considered Star Trek fans. I was like uh, 17, 18 or something like that. And I was taking my portfolio down to uh, Dragon Con, which is a fantasy science fiction festival. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, convention, convention. Uh, you know, everything from Dungeons and Dragons to Star Trek or whatever. But the key makeup effects guy from Pet Cemetery, uh, Bill Johnson, was uh, down there because they shot that in Atlanta. Dragon Con was in Atlanta. So I drove down. And it was my very first opportunity to show my special effects portfolio to a pro. So I was very excited and I had my, you know, drove the, had the portfolio under my arm and drove, you know, two hours down to Atlanta and I had no idea what I was getting to. I, I've never been to one of these conventions. I'd never heard of them. Um, I just got to the center, to the convention center. I could not believe 
the scale of this thing that just as an ocean of cars <laughs> the parking lot just went on and on and on and on yeah. and i was like oh you've got to be kidding and i had to park like two miles away and <laughs> hike <laughs> all the way over to the convention center and that and and that is where i experienced something of a um an epiphany about star trek i mean i i was aware of star trek especially the fandom through culture. And I always kind of thought, you know, bunch of nerds. <laughs> so I didn't take it seriously. And I kind of thought it was pretty silly, honestly. But as I'm getting closer to the convention center, you go, as you get closer, you get to where the handicap parking is. And I got to the handicap parking and I see this white, you know, I'm trying to say white service van, uh, kind of a moving van. And a person being lowered on a on one of those little elevator ramps off the back of this van and I look and I see the a mother and father lowering this kid he looks like he's 15 or so you know early teens uh he looks like a he seems to be a quadriplegic there's nothing you know going on below the neck yeah and he's dressed up in his starfleet uniform and uh, I don't know, it really got to me for some reason. It still kind of does. And I thought like, oh my God, look at the power that this show has. Right. You know, like it connects that deeply. And what, what, what does that mean to that kid, to those parents? And this was just a, a fraction of what I, of the kind of cultural, you know, universe I was about to walk into. And it completely it opened my eyes. And I thought, you know, who am I to... Uh, to judge where people get their meaning from. But it also made, that made me take it seriously. And then I started to sort of engage with the show, which at that time, I think it was Next Generation, I think it was coming out around that time, I think. Um, and then I got it. And I was like, oh, I see what this is. And then I got into Gene Roddenberry's original uh, show and his sort of his manifesto. And I could see the cultural power that it had, it just kind of hit me a little later and I needed a, um, a demonstration of its, of its power for me to kind of wake up to it. Yeah. It's important to a lot of people. So I really hope that our listeners who happen to be Star Trek fans really enjoy these next few episodes of Star Trek interviews. First up, we've got two episodes with Ethan Peck who plays Spock. And then after that, we'll have two episodes with the amazing Doug Jones who plays Saru and has had an entire career of playing creature characters, sharing with us the creativity that goes into enlivening a body that's been covered in latex. But first up, and I recorded this on the last day of production of season two of Star Trek Discovery, and no, there are no spoilers in this, but you will hear people working in the background. Ethan Peck shares with us the story of auditioning for Spock, and I love this story because it contains so many little things that make the auditioning process so hard and how he saw his way through to the other side. So let's kick things off with Ethan Peck. Let's do it. All right. Shouldn't you say something like, say it. What? Your catchphrase, man. Oh, hit it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I had to remind you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
But say what you just said before. Um, what did I say? <laughs> How crazy that this is. Oh yeah, it's about today being completely psychotic dream world shit. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like it's it's like I've acted on stage. I've acted on many sets. I've acted in big movies, little movies. I've never looked around and felt like I was trying to act in the middle of an icon. <laughs> yeah, know? that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's like it's like we're walking into. Um, a ghost world or something I, yeah it's very odd but we've all had such long journeys to be here that it doesn't feel it doesn't feel incomplete or um, false but it's still for me I mean we've been doing this oh gosh we've been doing this for like eight months now man and it and it and it I still look around and I say to myself me Dude, tell me about it, man. It's it's nerve. I'm it's ner- I'm nervous. It's like you know, it it means a, it's, it means a lot to me. Yeah. So, my first memory of working with you is when we did our first reading together, and you came and you sat down next to me, and you had this really big smile on your face. And you're like, look what I found, and it was like a li- original blueprints of the Enterprise from like the 1960s that you had gotten when you also ordered Leonard Nimoy's biography. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and so I've always sort of been wondering about your your pre- your your preparation process for Spock, and all I know is that you met his family. Yeah, so I met the, uh, the Nimoy family, uh, Adam and Julie, who are Leonard's son and daughter. And um, they each gave me a copy of the documentaries they each made about Leonard, which is amazing. And they really welcomed me and were so, just so curious about me. And um, that was so surreal. I was driving over the 405 South to uh, the Sportsman's Lodge on Ventura in Studio City, which is down the street from where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. So it was very surreal like collusion colliding of worlds um i tried to first wrap my head around why i'd been chosen to play spock because i thought i didn't know what i was reading for in the beginning right Mm. um and that led me down a path of like can i do this and all of this bullshit that i've talked to you a lot about (laughs) right 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 um then when i got here i found on craigslist so I'm not Spock isn't that common and on Craigslist I searched it and there was a guy selling a copy of it along with the blueprints to the original Enterprise and some other piece of like Starfleet manual or something and so I met him in the, like the first week I was up here and picked up the copy <clears throat> and, the, and the book and the blueprints and um, reading the book was hugely helpful really how? because a lot of people overlooked it because they thought just from the title that it was Nimoy sort of disowning Spock, this beloved character in the 60s, right? In right. this time of like Vietnam and um, social rights movements and um, he was this voice of reason and this humanist voice of reason especially. And, um, and so a lot of people didn't actually read it. And even the Nimoy family didn't say, hey, first thing you gotta do is read I Am Not Spock. And that's what I would have recommended to myself <laughs> had I read it because he goes into who is Spock and him, what is Spock to the public, and how they are inextricable because of his experience with Spock. And it's such a beautiful love letter Oh, so in other words, uh, Spock, I am not 
Spock alone. Yeah, it was right, right. it was basically saying like this is so I'm so indivisible from Spock mm-hmm. um, that it's the, the the title is sort of a, uh, an outcry or a defense of Nimoy in solidarity or in, in solitude or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, he was not rejecting Spock, but like like a crazy person would be like, I'm not crazy, you know, like I'm not Spock. It was kind of a almost a plea. It's it's really mm-hmm. beautiful, and um, and that really showed me that I was doing I was having similar revelations that he was um, in terms of the way he observes emotion and the way logic lives like philosophically we had come to a few of the same conclusions which I don't know gave me chills and made me feel like I was on the right path that's great yeah yeah there's there are always these um, they're definitely the ephemeral underpinnings of a of a character and their worldview and uh and sort of what makes them tick, but then, you know, getting to come aboard to, pl- to pick up a character that's already been established, that you, we get to steal little things. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot for me to go on with, with Pike too much, right? right. But I, you know, I, I, st- I stole Shatner's the way Shatner sits in the captain's chair. <laughs> yeah. I stole that. Yeah, I've noticed that. Right, and um, uh, so are there anything? Is there anything like that 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 you picked up from Nimoy that? You, that you sort of inserted into your performance immediately? Yeah, definitely. Like so what? like one of my, so he's from Boston. And so the way he um, pronounces words, it's got sort of a... Nimoy's from Boston. Yeah, Spock yeah, is yeah, not Nimoy's from, from yeah, Boston. Yeah, correct. correct. <laughs> um, but so there's a bit of a hard consonant in his pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And so I really tried to embrace that as much as possible because I tend to speak not roundedly, but smoothly. Whereas his was, you know, uh, hard jaw drops when he's pronouncing vowels and hitting his consonants. And so I've done my best to implement that. Also, my kind of like entry word, my keyword to speak with him uh, as him is um, captain. Because that's got the k and the captain, like not like captain, like I would say captain. And he says captain. It's got like, it drops into the front of the mouth. And so that's It's funny how so much of finding a character is the voice. Yeah. So much. One of my all-time favorite actors, Peter Sellers, speaks about the voice being the very first thing he discovers about a character. I don't know if you've seen Being There Mm -hmm. or, you know, Dr. Strangelove. He's a freak. He's one of my favorite actors. He's incredible. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting because I haven't heard that too much lately. Yeah, well, when you think about it, I mean, it's what it controls your breath, yeah. the way you you breathe, and uh, and I, I think that a lot of people don't understand that that speaking is action. You know, yeah. you are you are enacting something when you put words into the into the ether. Yeah, yeah, and Spock's voice is so important because I think. Beneath all of his complication, he's deeply earnest, mm-hmm. and I think he's always speaking from a very guttural place because everything he says he means um, completely. And so, it was very important. It's important every day. It takes sometimes days longer than others to drop into it because something may be going on with me. Um, but I can feel when I've hit the hit the bottom, and and everything's just very present. Yeah. It's a very, it's like probably the most uh, loving, uh, familial, touchy-feely, uh, 
set of I've ever worked group of people <laughs> yeah. I've ever worked with. What's it like being a you know trying to be rooted in in the the you know this this hardcore logician? <laughs> Did you ever find yourself going, oh, don't hug me right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. But most people can recognize when I'm not available. Right. <laughs> I, I don't make eye contact. Yeah. Um, but there's always a love missile flying in from Doug. <laughs> yeah, I know. I yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> for me, it's Aniqua. She, 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 she hug tackles me from behind sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few of those. It's shocking. Uh, yeah. she makes, it makes me scream a little bit, like a little girl. <laughs> Is there anything that surprised you that, that, about Spock that you didn't expect during the process of this show? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to have perspective now on my experience of it because it's been so full yeah. throttle. Yeah. I think that I've been altered as Ethan permanently because of the wisdom of Spock and the philosophies of Spock. And I really view him as the epitome of wise. Right, Wisdom, I think, comes from loss and acceptance of loss and acceptance of pain, which is, I think, this is what he goes through and what he does in this season. And he's always speaking in these sort of platitudes, um, but they are profound because he understands them. And as the viewer, you are, um, I, as the actor, am given the gift of the viewer's trust in Spock because Spock is this logical, all-knowing, sort of hyper-genius. Um, and so it was interesting to discover his earnestness, interesting to discover how deeply emotional he actually is. There's a great quote in um, Wrath of Khan uh, during Spock's funeral, and Kirk says, he's one of the greatest, most, one of the most human persons I've ever, met, I've ever known. And that's so true because he does have a deep, feeling and understanding of emotion and people um, but then it's really sharpened by his logic so all of his motives I think are emotionally based right to bring Pike to Talos 4 in the cage is not a logical move it's deeply emotional executed extremely logically perfectly logically and it was interesting to discover the relationship between logic and emotion in him mm. yeah now, just practically speaking, mm -hmm. I've, I've gotten to know you well enough to know that you're very professional and uh, not a complainer at all. <laughs> but I do know you do not like those frickin' ears. <laughs> it's more the eyebrows, man. Oh, is it the eyebrows? Yeah, the eyebrow blockers are really difficult. Yeah. I feel like less expressive. It, it's so well done that you just told me recently that you have the, it, the eyebrows are prosthetic. Yeah. And I was like, really? And then I was thinking, oh, well, of course they are. Yeah, yeah, because when you take them off, you have your own eyebrows again. Yeah, but they're really well done. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a masterpiece. But it takes a long time for that. To yeah, be, it takes about two and, good. two and a half hours. Oh, when you got the call to audition for this role, you didn't know what what it was. Uh huh. Can you tell tell us about that? Yeah, so I got um, an audition from my managers for something codenamed. Um, that I won't say, <laughs> right. but that they knew was Star Trek. And it was, um, I had about 36 hours to do it, and it was kind of vast um, content-wise. It was this alien that was in the size described as an Andorian, approached by Michael Burnham. He's in a cave, and he's having a psychotic break, and he's reciting bits of Alice in Wonderland. And it seemed to me 
like somebody had taken mushrooms for the first time in their lives and they'd been a square their entire <laughs> life. And suddenly like all of the emotions they'd been repressing all of their life started to come out. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe it was like data or something. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, and I almost didn't do it because it was so challenging. But I feel like I'd been through like this intense period of existential dread like the year leading up to the audition. Uh -huh. And so I felt like this guy's just having an existential crisis. I know what this is all about. And um, why, why, why had you come through this existential dread? I think because um, I had been working with my mother as my manager for many years. Oh. And we stopped working together. And a lot of things started to unravel for me. Oh, yeah. And, um, and there was a deeper sense of identity that I hadn't quite discovered. Right, um, well, while which also, I wasn't aware of, while also feeling cut loose. Yeah, uh, which sounds crazy, but like you know, I'd been entered into that sort of professional contract as a child, and so there were parts of me that were still boy-like, and suddenly on my own, I I didn't have realized I didn't have agency in certain ways, and so to have that cover lifted off and to see the world kind of anew was shocking. Mm -hmm. on, in ways I couldn't have expected and didn't really understand. And so, hence the existential crisis. Right. But I, I got through it, and I'm glad it happened. Mm -hmm. Because it wouldn't have, you know, this would have, wouldn't have been for me. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have understood this as deeply as I do now. Because that's what's happening to Spock, right? He's, um, he's, he's having this traumatic experience that's opening himself to himself. And he can't shut it back up. Right. Um, he's got to integrate his human side. Um, anyway, so I brought all that into the audition. They called me back in the next week. I knew I was going to have another call back after that because that went very well. And they were going to write a new scene. And about two weeks later, I got a new scene. And the audition was maybe three days later with Alex Kurtzman. And I was like, this is fucking Spock. I could not believe it was for Spock. Because never in my wildest dreams did I think... A, I would be called in for it. B, that they would do it again. And that I would be so far along in the process, you know? Like, right. I just had no clue. It was out of left field for right, me. Right, right. so iconic. And, um... Did, once you knew it was Spock, did that, you, did that start to mess you up at all? Yeah, for sure. I was like... Oh, uh, gosh. I yeah. was like a leaf in the wind. I was right. so scared. Yeah. And having a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I managed to suppress it enough to get everything out evenly. And, I don't know, man, here I am. How did you find out? Oh, you got the oh part? yeah, yeah. Um, so, I went in on the audition on a Wednesday. That night I went out to Suju with my buddy and I was like, I can't say what, but today something really awesome happened. And hopefully it goes forward. And I got a call from my manager and he's like, Ethan, we got bad news about Star Trek. And I was like, what? What? He's like, the microphone fucked up and didn't record oh properly. And it was purely, Lord. And it was purely a hardware. Did error. you have to go in again? <laughs> yeah. So oh my he was like, God. so he was like, you're gonna have to go back in tomorrow. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> um, he was like, no, man. I thought it was kind of a joke because he's fucked with me a few times before. Uh, I thought he was gonna be like, you got it. Right. But instead, he was like, you gotta go back in. And oh. so I went back in the next day, and was like, well, you know what? I'm gonna have to do this anyways, like doing things again and again. And so I went in, did it, and. That night I was like, even if I don't get this, how incredible to brush arms with this world and with this character. Right. And also a feeling of like dread of, ha of getting it because I hadn't carried 
such a big responsibility ever before in my life, and I was afraid I would fail. Mm, right. And some part of me was convinced that I would, but a greater part was convinced that I wouldn't. Right. And so when I got it, I um, it was Friday, and I had just gotten a massage, <laughs> and I was walking back to my apartment. I looked down on my phone, and I had a text from Orly Sidowitz, the casting director that I was most frequently speaking with, and she said, uh, welcome aboard, Mr. Spock. And I absolutely died. I sat down and cried it out for a little bit because I was so overwhelmed. On the streets of LA. On the streets of of Culver City. It was just so fantastic. That's great. Surreal, you know? It's like a life changing moment. Yeah. Yeah, In one text. Definitely. Yeah. What was it like for you? Did you have to audition? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I likewise did not know what the role was they codenamed the role i knew it was for star trek because we i'd been talking to them about what was your code name? uh uh my co- the code name was uh captain um parker <laughs> <laughs> mine was tom <laughs> tom <laughs> and but i'd i had spoken to them last year about lorica and uh they oh, very wow. wisely cast jason uh and i'm glad they cast jason because this was it was a blessing in disguise. This is this is by far the role I would have chosen. You yeah. Know? And, but when I found out it was Pike, it was after I was cast. Oh wow! So they cast me, and then they told me it was Pike, and I was through the roof. Whoa! Yeah, it was really cool. Really, really, really cool. And like you said, a sense of responsibility. That like, wow, I could really screw this up. <laughs> and I don't oh man, want that's to. so funny. Because it's really rare, you know, that you you get to take over a role from someone else and it's super rare to know the first act and the third act but very little of the second act yeah like you had a lot more to go on than I did yeah you had what you had one episode Uh, that's it pretty much you know there's I mean an argument that Bruce Greenwood played the role in the alternative timeline but but that's the Kelvin timeline it's the Kelvin timeline totally different oh we gotta go to work alright here we go here we go The auditioning process. I'm fairly outside of it. I mean, I'm not a performer, uh, but there's a certain time, right? It mostly happens what time of the year normally does this happen? For television? Television, yeah. There is a pilot season Mm -hmm. uh, that extends from pretty much February through March, but uh, that... And it's still there. There's still the, that's still the hot zone for auditioning for television. But it's really because of cable and streaming. It's spread out across the year now. But I do remember that. I think it was in those yeah February March, uh, where I'm you know I'm not part of this uh, world of auditioning. But I would notice that it was like this like season of depression that would descend upon all of my actor friends. Uh, where suddenly they would all sort of become unavailable and pissy and I had this sort of dark cloud following them around and it would take me and it took me a while to realize like oh it's pilot season (laughs) everyone all all my actor friends are all my actor friends are questioning their lives and it's a lot (laughs) of material that you're trying to process and a lot of rooms and a very tight schedule and you're going in you know it was not it's not uncommon to be having to prepare you know 18 to 25 pages per audition and you'll have three or four in a day. Um, you can't possibly prepare that much material and be that good. Uh, and, and on top of it, if you're in New York, 
it it's it's gray and it's cold. <laughs> it's, it's it's a full and it's a full time job that you're not going to get a penny for. Right? Yeah. You know? it, it is a job. It is a job. Constantly. I mean, like it's this a lot is, of work. It's a lot of work. Like you can't like you know, like you know. And that was sort of around the time I would start to notice that it must be pilot season because I would you know, uh, you know, ask my actor friends, you know, like Anson and whoever, you know, like hey, let's go ahead and have a drink. Like can't. Like what's going on? Like I got to go learn lines. Like, well, for what? Like, just, I don't know. I just, I have to. That's what I, that's what we do at this time of year. And they just see like, oh man, that's rough. Like you're going to have to home and work yeah. and work. And most, and the odds are nothing's going to come of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. on top of all that, there's just the usual. Um, but you can't be in that mindset and no. end a job. You have to have a, an almost fool's hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep dredging the barrel for more hope that it is possible or it won't, it will not happen. And this is why actors have a reputation. Now I have a question for you. <laughs> yes. We were talking about those prosthetic eyebrows uh -huh. that Ethan had to put on. I don't really understand the process or why it was so difficult, how many different layers or what it, you're, you have a prosthetics background. So do you know kind of like what that would be like? That kind of makeup uh, is there's just no room for error. I mean, it's the, the eyebrows are one of the most defining features of a person's face, and our I think our facial recognition software that we're all born with uh, takes eyebrows uh, feature prominently in that, and we can recognize when something's off about them. So. They have to be absolutely straight. They have to be blended perfectly. There's like, I mean, all prosthetics is what you want. You know, you don't want there to be any seams, but something like that sitting right in the middle of the person's face and a very expressive part of the face where there's eyebrow movement going up and down. That's where wrinkles on the edge of the appliance can bunch up. And if it's, if everything is not straight and you've, oh, and you've either over, blended or under blended you start getting little tiny wrinkles that show up every single time the actor moves their forehead so there's just a lot of room for something to screw up there so i i know that part of this is not part of his two and a half hour daily but when designing it they'll frequently go through multiple uh, sculpts multiple applications and then try it out a couple of times because it depends on the muscles underneath the, the actor's exactly hmm. where the natural crease lines form. Like you don't want to blend in between those. You want to use them and hide your seams and the places where the net, where there's going to be a, a crease anyway. Uh, if you don't put it there, then you end up with a really weird looking fake crease. And th but this isn't always important for every little appliance, but for something like eyebrows, yeah, you got to really uh, slow down and uh, no room for error because it, uh, even a casual viewer will pick it up. Um, as a character, how would you Spock is a really fascinating character because there's something about him. That's a bit of a wish fulfillment and amongst humans, right? To not have your heart. So open to the winds, mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, and then tortured by your feelings and that kind of thing. There's, I think it's a, a great character because it's 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 a uh, it's almost this mythological sort of being 
and a, a sort of a perfected version of ourselves. I mean, it's not really because he has there's flaws in a lot of Star Trek, especially the relationship and the original uh, series and movies about Kirk and Spock. They are kind of represent sort of the heart and the mind. And the one is impetuous and passionate, and the other one is stands back and is cold and uh, approaches everything just through ration and reason. Um, but how, do, as as an actor, I've always wondered. It's all about being in touch with your emotions. Now, don't show any of us. Don't. Show, and of course, that's impossible. So, how do you? Where do you draw the line with a character like Spock? Well, I think that was kind of the genius of Roddenberry making him half human. Uh, so that he's at all constantly at war with those two identities and that, that constant conflict. Now, obviously, he identifies more as a Vulcan because he grew up there. Um, but I, I thought I think that was a very, uh, a very, very smart choice by Roddenberry. He is half human. And you could really see the sort of like, I don't want to be a slave to this uh, emotional side of myself. It's it, it leads to trouble. But there it is. And I can't ignore it. And you're watching that fight between them. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful character. is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music for this episode provided by Montplaisir under a 1.0 universal license. Special thanks to Ethan Peck for letting me stick a microphone in his face between takes. Thanks also go out to the entire Star Trek Discovery team and to the global Star Trek community. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. And thanks to you for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>